0: All right, good morning, church. Good morning. My name is Joel Lingenfelter. Uh, I am the executive pastor here at LAFC, and it's my privilege to bring the word today. Pastor Tony is off on vacation in the vacation mecca that is Kansas. Um, And uh, I joke because I don't want to go to Kansas, but he loves it there and is having a great time. So uh, we'll look forward to having him back with us next week. So if you've been around, if you've been to the business meetings, um, you probably have some idea that Joel is involved with the, uh, the building project. And before we dive into the Word of God, I'd love to give you a little update. You know, when we started uh, creating Space Expecting Harvest, we introduced the phrase, joyfully flexible, and see, first service, nobody knew either. Future focused, right? So we're not doing a great job with this phrase. but. But the key is you guys have been really flexible, and we really, really appreciate that. Um, I have good news. Today was probably the single worst day in the parking lot, right? So when you drove in and you dropped off the cliff and all that stuff, um, we paved tomorrow. So yeah, that's going to be no more well there'll still be some stones but this will be covering those stones you should next week be able to drive in nice and smooth Uh, and so we're really looking forward to that thank you thank you thank you for all of your flexibility being able to walk over those stones I you know don't don't worry if you've gotten used to getting the golf cart ride into church every morning they'll still be there next week even though we have pavement so don't panic Um, it's been a good time We've also got some other things happening behind the scenes. This is the first week we've ever had water on uh, the, connected to the water system as opposed to on a well from the mill. Uh, And we're continuing to move ahead. There's a a lot of electrical changes and things coming. uh, And you can see what's happening outside every week as that building keeps going up. So God has been really, really good and we are excited. Um, One other thing, I just wanna tell you, if you have been involved in that uh, Caring for Our Construction Crew C3 ministry, thank you so much that really means a lot. It's providing you know, food and drinks and just being hospitable to the men who are here serving us. And uh, that has been extremely well received and has been a really good testimony that something's different here. So this summer has been a great summer. I hope you have enjoyed this series with us on uh, what it is to be anchored. We talked about you know the relational connections, what, how God wants us to, to be, uh, to interact with one another. We talked about some of the difficulties of life, dealing with stress, dealing with emotional conflicts, depression, abuse, all of those things. Then we talked about who God is, right, and his characteristics and his traits. And today we're going to start talking about what it means then to move forward and to live with those things. Uh, And I'm pretty excited about what we have to hear. So let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, just thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And just thank you for... Uh, your provision. I pray that you would be with us today as we, uh, we go through your word and I just pray that you would guide every step of the service. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we do every week, we will be using the scriptures. So if you need a Bible, put your hand up and our ushers will be glad to get you one. Um, <clears throat> we'll be in 1 Peter this week and that starts on page 1139 in that blue Bible. If you are more of a, hey, I like to use my phone, my tablet, in the YouVersion Bible app, there is an events tab, and on that events tab, you'll see Lancaster Evangelical Free Church, and if you click on that, it will actually take you to every single verse we're going to use this week, so that can save you a little time in hunting around. <clears throat> so I was a freshman in college the first time I heard the word worldview. Uh, It was a business business ethics class that kind of rocked my world uh, because it was about a lot more than just business ethics. And I was introduced to the idea of worldview, and it's really something that I've thought about actually quite a bit since then. Now, if you aren't familiar with what worldview means, it's defined like this. A largely unconscious but generally coherent set of presuppositions and beliefs that every person has which shape how we make sense of the world and everything in it. This, in turn, influences such things as how we see ourselves as individuals, how we interpret our role in society, how we deal with social social issues, and what we regard as truth. Our worldview affects how we view literally everything. That last phrase, what we regard as truth, is a very interesting one. Years ago, I served as a foreman on a jury. Now, the case was a fairly uh, simple one. It's a drunk driving case. A guy was, was out for a drive, he nearly hit somebody, they called the police, the police found him. As he was still driving, they pulled him over, they gave him a sobriety test, they arrested him, they put him in jail, and now he was on trial. About as open and shut as you would think a case could be. Now, the defense didn't even bother arguing he was drunk. He'd had so much to drink, there was no chance they're going to argue about that. Um, instead, what they argued was well, it wasn't him, it was his friend who was driving. Now, I'm sure that was the first time anyone's ever used that defense, but it was, you know, it just seemed very odd to me, right? Like, you got pulled over, the police arrested the driver, and I was just claiming, no, no, it was that guy. Um, in addition to that, there were two witnesses called, the ones who had called the police about him driving drunk. And they were uh, just two women that were really confusing. Their testimony was a little bit contradictory at times, was hard to follow. And when it was all done, I remember thinking, now why on earth did they call them? Um, When we got into the jury room and began discussing the case, it became apparent that most people agreed this was a pretty simple case but there were a few who did not believe the defendant was guilty. And we spent hours discussing the details of what we'd heard, the facts of the case as we knew them, and they simply would not budge. And then at one point I remember looking at him and saying, now you realize that if any point he was driving, he's guilty. And they said, wait, 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 you're saying if he was driving in the parking lot when he almost hit the women, He's guilty. Like, yeah, he was drunk. If he's driving, he's guilty. And suddenly, that everything changed. Now they were willing to say that he was guilty. And what what it came down to was they believed the witnesses, but they didn't believe the police officer. And, and that puzzled me for a long time. I, I left the courthouse understanding why the prosecution had called those poor witnesses, but but really what it came down to was worldview. Let me explain. For those in the jury who grew up in an environment where police could be trusted, the case was really simple, right? Guy was driving drunk, got pulled over, was arrested, he's guilty. But for those who grew up in a neighborhood where the police were not to be trusted but rather to be feared, why would they trust what he said? He might be telling the truth, or he could be lying, but there was no way to be sure. But the witnesses, they positively identified the driver as the defendant. And the witnesses to those folks were credible because they were real people, they weren't police officers, and therefore, by that worldview, they had no reason to lie. Now here's the thing, right? There were other people in the car. So for me, I'm thinking, Well, you would think if this guy wasn't actually driving, the passengers in the car would have all been like, yo, I'd like to testify that that guy wasn't driving the car we were riding around in. But none of them did. And to me, I'm thinking it's because they didn't want to perjure themselves, right? But perhaps with a different worldview, you would think, well, maybe they didn't want to testify because they were afraid of retribution. Worldview affects everything. It affects how we see things. And it leads to different understandings as to what truth is. Right? And that really begs the question then, is there something such as absolute truth? Because if there is absolute truth, it's in our best interest to ensure that our worldview gives us a view of truth that is close to that absolute truth as possible. In fact, Jesus himself tells us that when we listen to him, we will know the truth and what? The truth will set you free. Amen. Right? Uh, Everything that comes from the mouth of God is true and is trustworthy. tells us in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for correcting, and rebuking, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be fully equipped for every good work. When we know the truth, when we engage the truth, and when we align ourselves to it, we are set free. We are equipped to do what God has called us to do. We are ready to do what we were created for. So what do we do if our worldview has given us a distorted view of truth? You know, the good thing is that, about a worldview is that it isn't fixed. Things can change. For example, good experiences with police officers might eliminate some or maybe even all of that mistrust. I always used to wonder, why do police departments spend all this money making these cars that are all decorated, and they, they host car shows and things? And the reason is to create positive experiences with police in communities where they may be negative. Now, in Lititz, I think we have a pretty good police department. Some of you might have seen this on Thursday night. It was like officer's night out. Uh, you know, So there's Officer Havishan uh, hanging on to a, a mechanical bull, uh, at least I hope it's mechanical. So, um, <laughs> You know, but those kind of events, right, they're not accidental, and they're not just because those guys are bored and have nothing to do, right? They're there to change worldview. Many things shape our worldview. The communities we grew up in, the people we work with, the teachers we had in school, the family dynamics of our home, our relationship with God, the books we read, uh, the websites we visit, the news we read, etc. Now, none of us have full control over every item in our past that contributes to our worldview. But we do have the ability to affect our worldview in a positive way going forward. Now, the most important thing you can do is decide what will be the foundation upon which your belief system is built. Now, foundations are interesting things. I've been around a number of construction projects, and I've never yet seen a building where the foundation built itself. Right? The foundation is always built by someone. And the same is true for the foundation of our worldview. Whatever belief system forms the grid by which you evaluate something, it was created by someone. Now maybe it was a great philosopher, right? That sounds great. Or maybe a political figure or a collection of scientists. Maybe a a teacher or or maybe CNN or Fox News or worse, even Facebook, right? Like, maybe you created your worldview out of a blend of all of those things or other outside elements, but it makes up the core of how you see the world. Now, if you build a building on a bad foundation, it won't stand for long. So you want to make sure that whoever is building your foundation is really good at what they do. Now, when it comes to a foundation of a worldview, I believe it's unwise to use anything that was created by fallen, sinful creatures. Right? The foundation of your worldview needs to give you an accurate view of truth. And the only source of an accurate view of truth is God, the creator of all things, who is always truth. So how do we get there? Well, first thing we have to do is lean in to the word of God. Right, in Colossians we read this, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. When we read the Word of God, when we pray through it, when we study it, it will change us. It will change our hearts. It will change our minds and ultimately change our worldview. In Hebrews it says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. But it's not enough to simply read and study the word of God. The word of God was not meant simply to be consumed and hidden in your heart, although both consuming it and hiding in your heart are good things. The word of God was given to us with a purpose. And God tells us that purpose in Isaiah. It says this, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. See, the word of God, the word of God, It is given to us that God may accomplish his will. So what does it mean to live the word of God? Our passage today comes from the book of 1 Peter. Now, 1 Peter was written by the apostle Peter. He walked side by side with Jesus through his entire earthly ministry. If you know Jesus and his disciples, there were 12 and he spent considerable time with those 12 men, but out of those 12, there were three that were kind of an inner circle. And Peter was one of those three. Peter was as close to Jesus as anyone will ever read. And he wrote this book to us to tell us what it means to live the word of God. So let's look at 1 Peter together, starting in chapter 1 at verse 3. If you're using one of the Bibles we handed out, it's page 1139. And we're going to start in Verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now there's a lot of really great things to think about here, but I want to break a little bit of it down. First of all, Therefore, with minds that are fully alert and, alert and fully sober. See, following God is not about checking your mind at the door. It's not about having faith and never thinking. We're to engage God with our minds, fully alert, sober, carefully. So if anyone ever tells you that being a Christian means you have to turn your brain off, scriptures completely disagree with that assessment. Use every bit of mental capacity God has given you to lean into his word. Secondly, the gospel is about hope. Set your hope on the grace he brought to you. You know, as we've walked through this series, we've talked about some difficult things, difficult experiences, life-changing, worldview-informing experiences. But through it all, there is hope. The hope of the grace to be brought to you. You. Not just other perfect people, which, newsflash, there aren't any, right? Grace that is to be brought to you. No matter what life has looked, at, be, looked like before today, you have hope. Hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the grace he will bring to you. Now, there's a word that's not here. It doesn't say he'll bring judgment. It says he'll bring grace. And the reason it says that is Peter is writing to the elect. He is writing to Christians. And he says, Jesus will bring grace to you. As followers of Jesus, our sins are forgiven and we do not get what we deserve. We receive grace because of the goodness and love of the Almighty God. Amen? Amen. God is good. He is so, so good. But what if you don't know him? If you don't know God, you need him. You need God's truth as the foundation of your worldview. You need his love in your life. You need his grace when Jesus returns. God is so good and he loves you and he wants to spend eternity with you. But sin, your sin and my sin, it stands in the way. None of us are perfect, but Jesus is. And his sacrifice on our behalf is what allows us to know that when we stand before God, we'll be washed as white as snow. It allows us to live free of the bonds of our sin. Romans 10:9 tells us what to do. It says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never done that, if you've never put God at the center of your life, take a moment right now and pray this prayer with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've done things that are wrong. I've done things that stand between us. I want the forgiveness that comes for making Jesus my perfect sacrifice. I want the love that comes as one of your children, and I want to receive the grace that you will bring when you are revealed. I believe that you died on my behalf and rose again victorious over sin. Jesus, be the center, be the foundation of my life. I want to live as a child of God. Amen. So now what? Well, as obedient children says, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as when he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. See, before you were a child of God, you lived in ignorance. Ignorance of the truth, ignorance of God's word, ignorance of how we should live. But now, with God, we are redeemed, and we need to live like it. So what does that mean? What does it mean to live as one redeemed? Does it mean that we need to find the biggest list of rules we can and do everything we can to follow them and make sure we don't get anything wrong? No, it really doesn't. In fact, God wants us to live lives that give him glory. That to live a righteous life means to live a life that reflects his glory. And we can be tempted to try to do that by making a checklist Making a bunch of rules, but that's really not how God works. In fact, our text addresses that. Look with me at verse 18 and 19. It says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Now, don't miss this, right? The Christian church at this time is primarily former Jews or fellow Jews. These are people who'd worked their entire life to live perfect, righteous lives following every word of the law to the letter. And what does Peter call this attempt at righteousness? An empty way of life. Now, let me be clear all scripture is valuable, including the Old Testament. Please don't forget that verse 18 comes right after and on the heels of verse 15 that says be holy in all that you do, and verse 16 that says be holy because I am holy. Being holy is being like God, and being like God is different than what the world seeks. Being like God means living according to his word and caring about the things that God cares about, including what kind of things are sin. So let's look at chapter 2. We'll start in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Well, that's pretty cool. Peter clarifies what it means. Our lives are to put God's character on display. Our lives are to reflect what he has done and who he is. But there's something else here, something that's easy to kind of blaze right on by and not pay any attention to. It says, though they accuse you of doing wrong. See, Scripture knows that the values of God are incompatible with the values of the world. And when we go against the values of the world, The world attacks, the world accuses, and the world condemns. I'm sure every person in this room can think of an example in the media where a Christian was attacked for living out their beliefs. And that is going to happen. It was happening during the time of the early church. That's why it's written here. It's happened all throughout church history, and it's happening now. But that should not deter us from living lives that give God glory. Amen. From living a life that reflects the hope we have, and living a life committed to and devoted to the truth in God's word, we've been given a template on how to respond with grace and kindness. Now, I want to read you one example. It's from the New York Post, and it's entitled "Believe All Women Makes the Pence Rule Just Common Sense." Talks about a man named Robert Foster. It says Robert Foster, a state representative in Mississippi, who is running for governor got into hot water last week after he denied journalist Lorison Campbell's request for a 15-hour ride-along with his campaign. Foster was blunt about his reasoning. He tweeted, Before our decision to run, my wife and I made a commitment to follow the Billy Graham rule, which is to avoid any situation that may evoke suspicion or compromise of our marriage. I'm sorry Ms. Campbell doesn't share these views, but my decision was out of respect of my wife. Now, Foster isn't alone in following such guidelines. The media made hay of Vice President Mike Pence's admission that he doesn't dine alone with women other than his wife. In the Washington Post, writer Monica Hess went after Foster's marriage, positing that, quote, his marriage vows are so flimsy that he couldn't be trusted to uphold them unless a babysitter monitors the lawmaker. Right, I found this whole scenario fascinating. Robert Foster is simply refusing to put himself in a situation where anyone could accuse him of inappropriate behavior. And instead of celebrating his integrity, one writer is attacking him and his marriage and his character. Now, I know nothing about Robert Foster, right? For all I know, he's the worst politician in the history of the universe, or maybe the best. I really have no idea. But his desire to protect his marriage is one we should all applaud. For our part, we are redeemed, and we need to live like it. In order to to live like redeemed children of God, we need to know how God wants us to live. And to to know how God wants us to live, we need to lean into his word. And as we lean into his word, it will do its work in our lives, changing us, transforming us, making us more like him. We respond to his love with good deeds, and we respond to attacks on our character with grace and kindness. The Word of God needs to be the standard by which everything else in our lives is viewed. It needs to be the foundation of our worldview, a foundation not built by man, but by God. Living a life anchored in truth means that we don't compromise what we believe because the world doesn't like it. Living a life anchored in truth means we live a life that reflects the character of God. When we do this, we are a living testimony to the world around us. Each of us has a relational world, right? A group of eight to 15 people that God has supernaturally and strategically placed in our lives, that we may share Christ with those that don't know him and make disciples of those that do. The Greeks had a word for this. They called it their oikos, right? No one else in your life is as close to you as the people that make up your oikos, so what does it look like to live a life that testi- testifies to God's goodness to those around us? Let's see what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer." But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Be like minded. That's how that passage began. Be like minded. Now, what does it mean to be like minded? Does it mean we have to think the same, that nobody can be different? We know that's impossible, right? But we can be like-minded in spirit. We can live in harmony with one another regardless of our viewpoints. And that matches what we read in Romans 12, verse 18, where it says, Always being, we should, says we should live at peace with everyone as far as it's our part. Always being in conflict does not reflect the heart of God. Rather, we should live in peace and harmony with those around us. Now, be humble. Humility is another trait that really stands out against the values of the world. When we're humble, we seek the best for others, not ourselves. When we're humble, we don't place ourselves above others, but we assume the form of a servant. Imagine the impact every one of you could have, every one of us could have, if we just lived this one verse. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. There's a great life verse right there. Now, if we look at verse 13, we see a repeat of a theme elsewhere in this book. People are going to criticize you for standing for God's truth. Our society is really good at this right now. A lot of things that Scripture teaches are unpopular, whether it's the sanctity of life or the definition of marriage, the fact that we we're created male and female in the image of God, or the fact that sex is reserved only for marriage, or maybe the most controversial claim in all of Scripture, the supremacy of Christ is the one and only way to God. Right? Nothing is more offensive than John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Scripture teaches these things. They are part of the truth of God's Word, and they're worth standing for even when people mistreat you for them. But standing for truth doesn't mean we're arrogant and angry. I want to highlight verse 15 again. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect gentleness, and respect. If our focus is on the reverence of Christ, our answers won't be angry. They won't be condescending. They won't be combative. But they'll be filled with gentleness and respect. Our words should be evidence of the overflowing grace and love of Jesus in our lives. The people in your oikos are the ones most likely to see how you live. You have the opportunity to share the hope you have, the hope for a grace-filled eternity completely overwhelmed by the love and presence of God. When your beliefs are challenged, stand firm on the truth of God's word, answering with grace and love. The best life you can possibly live is the one that God has called you to. Don't miss out. God has given each of us a mission. That mission is to make disciples. And he's given us a place to do it within our oikos. How we live is a testimony to those that are closest to us. As we read today, be holy as he is holy. Here at LEFC, we sum that up in two words, live truth. It's right up there on the wall. And the purpose for living truth is so that we can proclaim Jesus to a lost world. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your incredible love and mercy. Thank you that you are so, so, so good. Lord, thank you that you come to give us grace, that you come to bring grace and love to those that are your followers, not judgment. Thank you that you have called us out of a world that is lost. Thank you that you've given us a foundation for a worldview that is one that is based on your truth. Thank you that you have called us to honor you and give you uh, all the glory. Lord, you are good. Your mercy endures forever. Your love is incredible. And Lord, as, as your children, we are so thankful that you have called us. So may we live lives that are worthy of the calling that we have been given. In Jesus' name, amen. So what does it look like? to live a life with a worldview whose foundation is on Scripture. Chapter 4, verse 8 begins, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. You are dismissed.